You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. Please join with me in turning to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. We have come today to the 44th verse of the 13th chapter. We're going to read to verse 46. Matthew chapter 13. And we read beginning at verse 44. Our Lord said this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let's go to our God together in prayer and ask his blessing on this time of preaching. Father in heaven, we give you praise and thanks for your Son, our Savior, our Shepherd, our King, our Lord, our God. We thank you for your redeeming work in our lives in and through Him. We thank you for the opportunity we have today to magnify Him and to tell the truth about Him, to declare Him and all that is found in Him, to acknowledge and to celebrate together His preeminence and the preeminent value of the treasure that is found in Him alone. Lord, would you strengthen me to that end? Would you help me today to declare the glories of Jesus? And would you strengthen us as we listen to grasp the things that you have revealed? What a gift you've given us in your word. But apart from the power of your spirit, the working of your spirit, we cannot understand, respond properly to what you have revealed. Lord, help us this morning to be good hearers of your word, not self-deceived people who just hear, but people who are blessed in their doing. We do know, Lord, that there are people hearing me this day who don't know you, some who are deceived and think they do know you, but they don't, and some, Lord, who perhaps even for them this is their first real exposure to the gospel. Lord. Whatever their condition, we know this, you save. And we ask for that mercy this day, that you would open hearts and open understandings and and save, remove deception and save. But we gather as your church because we need the continual washing that we receive through the proclamation of your holy word. Lord, would you bless your church today? So many needs represented in this room some known, some unknown, but we are grateful that you are sufficient for all these things and ask you to meet the needs of your people this day through the proclamation of your word. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world 
and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return or in exchange for his soul? What is the value of a soul? What is the value of a soul in the estimation of a man or a woman who's in danger of losing their soul? What is your soul worth to you? What is the value of salvation? In the case of someone who has not yet been saved, a soul that needs to be saved, and you you hear the gospel, you hear the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, and you recognize your lostness. You know that you're lost, but you have now found the answer to your need in Christ. What value will you place on the solution? What value will you place on the one who provides the solution? These two parables, the parable of the treasure hidden in the field, discovered in the field, the parable of the pearl of great value, they answer that question. What is the value of salvation? What is the worth of the kingdom of heaven? They make the same basic point with a slightly different emphasis. The, emphasis, the, the, the difference in emphasis, it's instructive. We'll talk about it more in a moment. But they make the same basic point, and that point is about worth. The worth of the kingdom of heaven, or you could say the worth of salvation, or you could say the worth of Christ. And you can say it in any of those ways because what these two parables describe is what is recognized when someone enters the kingdom of heaven. This will be the perspective of people who are saved. These parables describe what they have seen, what they've understood, what they've believed, what they've responded to as they entered the kingdom of heaven, as they received Christ as Lord and Savior. A person meets with the declaration of the kingdom of heaven. They meet with the salvation offer that is found in the kingdom of heaven. They meet with the revelation of the Savior King himself, the King of the kingdom, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And they receive that message and they trust in the Savior. By faith, they enter the kingdom of heaven. What have they understood? What have they come to see? I want you to remember that in, in this section we're in, multiple parables given to us by Christ, there's an emphasis on understanding. Matthew 13, look at verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. Remember, we talked about the fact that Christ now teaching almost exclusively in parables is both a sign of, it's a token of judgment and of grace. Those who've received the truth in, in, Plainly spoken terms are now judged by hearing the truth in parables. Those who have received the truth later get the explanation for these parables, grace upon grace. Those who have received are given even more. But as Christ declares this judgment, he says of the people who have rejected the truth, they don't understand. 
Verse 15, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. What do you do when you understand? What do you do when you understand with your heart? You turn from your sins to the living God and you receive salvation. The 23rd verse, Matthew 13 says, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. The good soil represents people who understand. So far in the, in the parables that we've studied, we've seen three very important truths about the kingdom of heaven. The first truth we saw in the parable of the soils is the, the word of the kingdom of heaven will largely be rejected. There are three soils presented that do not represent salvation. Hard hearts where the word of God doesn't penetrate. Shallow responses to the word of God that soon wither away. People who, who for a time seem to receive the word, but the cares and the concerns of this world, the treasures of this world, choke out the word of God. It doesn't bear fruit. Most of the time, the word of God is rejected, but it will meet with good soil. There will be people saved. Everyone for whom Christ died will be saved through the preaching of the gospel. So the word of God will meet with good soil, and where it does meet with good soil, there's going to be much fruit variation in fruit bearing, but all of it supernatural, good fruit. And we saw that those redeemed lives rescued through that message, the sons of the kingdom gathered through the, the declaration of the gospel, they will exist side by side with the sons of the evil one until Jesus comes again. Christ in all of these parables is explaining the mysteries of the kingdom, something veiled in the Old Testament, now brought to full light that the Messiah is going to come to the earth not just once, but twice, the first time to save, the next time to judge, and to save through judgment those who have come to faith in Him. There will be both judgment and deliverance. A great separation will occur at the end of the age. Those who have been saved gathered into the kingdom, those who are alive when Christ returns but are not believing will be judged with fire, everlasting damnation, everlasting blessing. This is what awaits the end of the age. And so we were taught that the sons of the kingdom live in a world full of evil until Jesus returns, side by side with the sons of the evil one, in a world where the work of the devil is, is evident. It is only Christ who's going to usher in kingdom conditions. The church isn't going to do it. Politics won't do it. Jesus will do it. And until then, we serve as missionaries in this world desperately in need of the light of the gospel. And yet, despite the rejection of the message, and despite that message being declared in a world full of Satan's work, the word of the kingdom will spread throughout the earth, just like that mustard plant that has small beginnings, but in the end is larger than any plant in the garden. And the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. So the word of the kingdom will spread throughout the earth. And where it spreads, it will provide blessing 
And not only will it grow, but just like the leaven hidden in the flour, so the gospel, wherever it spreads, brings blessing with it. It permeates the darkness. This is what we've learned about the kingdom of heaven. Now, these two parables describe something additional, something very important. They describe how the rescued ones regard the kingdom of heaven. Where you find good soil, where the word takes root, where there is good fruit, where you have the sons of the kingdom gathered in through the preaching of the gospel, how do these people understand the kingdom of heaven? How do they see it? How do they regard it? How do they respond to it? That's what these two parables declare. The perspective of someone who enters the kingdom of heaven. This is a great opportunity for you to examine yourself with respect to salvation. Are, have you ever entered the kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ? Is Jesus truly your Lord and Savior? Do you have eternal life? Are your sins forgiven? Is the hope of the gospel your hope? Is the living God your Father through faith in His Son? Well, one way you examine that is to ask, have I ever regarded the kingdom of heaven the way that these two parables present the perspective? Have I ever really seen it this way? Have I ever really responded this way? Do I understand, as Jesus puts it, do I understand the kingdom of heaven? So together this morning we think about the value of, and the valuation of the kingdom of heaven. The value and the valuation of the kingdom of heaven. We will examine these two parables under two very simple points. The parables examined and then the parables applied. The parables examined and the parables applied. First, let's examine them. Let's understand what they're saying. We begin with the hidden treasure, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, when we first read this in, in our world, that might seem like something strange. A man who finds a treasure hidden in a field, and then he buries it again, covers it up. Then he goes and buys the field after liquidating everything that he has. The reason why that might seem strange to us is because we live in a world where there are banks. Your uh, paycheck is deposited in a bank or a savings and loan or wherever it is you put it. But we live in a world where there are banks. They didn't have that. There were no banks in their world. They didn't go down to Wood Forest National Bank and deposit their check. They didn't go put their valuables in a safe deposit box. If you had something valuable, maybe you would hide it in your home. But the problem is thieves break in and steal. So if you had something really valuable and you wanted to make sure it was safe, it was not uncommon for these people to bury their treasures in the earth. You've got to remember this is a war-torn area of the world. 
the people had experienced deportation to Assyria, Babylon. And so they understood that possibly they could be driven from their residence. And so if you're driven away from your home, you've buried your treasure in the earth. When the time comes, you return, you can go retrieve your treasure. Well, not everybody returned home. And sometimes people would even bury their treasure in the earth and then die. And so the treasure's out there and no one knows about it. The common nature of this practice is seen in that later in Matthew 25, Jesus tells another story that involved something buried in the earth. Remember the story of the the master who gave to his servants money to be invested. And there was one unwise, unfaithful steward who took his master's money and just buried it in the earth, Matthew 25, 18. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So in a world where the earth served like a bank, it was possible, not probable, but possible that someone might discover a treasure hidden in a field. Maybe they're walking through a field and through rain and erosion, something is now protruding above the ground, the earth, that before was hidden. They see it. Or maybe they've been hired by someone to plow a field, and as they're plowing a field, they discover it as they are plowing. The man in this story finds it, Jurisco is the word, discovers it. He's not looking for it. He stumbles upon it, and he covers it up. Now, why would he do that? Why would he cover it back up? Comparable to a man who finds this treasure, hides it again, and from joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Well, he covers it up because he knows there would be a dispute about ownership. If he just takes it out of the field, not everyone would agree that it was his, even if the owner of the field didn't know about it. Even if the owner of the field wasn't the original owner of the treasure, there would be a dispute about who owns it if the man lifts it out of the earth and takes it. In fact, the rabbis debated about this very sort of thing, whether the person who finds it owns it or the person who owns the field owns it. They would debate about this sort of thing. Leon Morris, commenting on this, said this, when anyone found treasure like this, the legal position appears to have been that the finder was entitled to keep it. But acquiring legal title to such a find was not always straightforward. If the finder was an employee, his employer could argue that he was acting as his agent, especially if the employer happened to own the land where the find was made. And if he was his employer's agent in lifting the treasure, then the treasure belonged to the employer. This will be the reason the man hid the treasure instead of lifting it straightway. If he lifted it before the field was his, it might be argued that when he did the lifting, he was acting as the owner's agent. By buying the land before lifting the treasure, he removed all possibility of dispute. It is in this connection that we should understand the man's buying the field, that he had to sell all he had to buy it indicates that he was a poor man. Now listen, the point of the parable because people stumble on this. The point of the parable is not whether or not what the man does is legal. The point of the parable is not whether what the man did was ethical. The point of the parable is about the value of the treasure. 
that the treasure is more valuable than the price necessary to acquire it. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a situation where a man discovers a treasure and counts that treasure to be of such worth that he will liquidate everything he has in order to have that treasure. And notice he does it with joy, from joy over it. He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. He does it with joy. That is, he has no doubt about the value of what he has found. He has no misgivings that he might discover that the treasure wasn't worth it. No, he knows the treasure is worth it. And so in his case, literally everything he had ever worked for, he liquidates to buy the field and to have the treasure the treasure hidden in the field. Notice the second one, the pearl, as we often think about it, of great price, the costly pearl. Verse 45, again, by the way, these parables are paired. They are meant to be read together. Different emphasis in each one. It's a way of underscoring a point, to underscore the worth of the kingdom of heaven. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. Seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, the first man in the first story, he's not treasure hunting. He stumbles upon the treasure. But this story is of a man who is a professional treasure hunter. This is what he does for a living. He's a pearl merchant. Imparos, merchant, one who travels by ship for business reason. This man travels about looking for pearls. In Revelation 18, there's weeping for fallen Babylon, and the, the merchants are mentioned. Revelation 18, verse 11, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. These merchants travel about the world buying up and then selling their treasures. Well, in our Lord's story, you have a merchant who has seen lots of pearls. He specializes in them. He's in search of them. And one day he finds the most valuable pearl he has ever seen, the pearl of pearls. This is emphasized in verse 46, that it's one pearl. Upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. This pearl worth more than all of the other pearls he had purchased combined. And in both stories, notice this is not just an impulse. It's true, the first man is described as doing what he does over joy concerning what he had found. But this is not impulsive because they have to go away first and sell all that they have and then come back and buy what they buy. 
The first man buries it, goes, liquidates everything, comes back, buys the field. This man, verse 46 says, he went and sold all that he had, comes back and he buys this one pearl. This would take time. This would take effort. This would indicate that there are no doubts, no misgivings. The treasure is worth the price. That's the point of the two stories. So what message then is communicated to us about the kingdom of heaven? Let me mention a few things. First of all, clearly what is on display here is the value of the kingdom of heaven. When you meet with the kingdom of heaven, the declaration of the kingdom, the declaration of salvation, the revelation of the king himself, when you meet with the kingdom of heaven, you have met with the greatest treasure imaginable. The word of the gospel comes to you. Salvation through that message is offered to you, and it's offered to you in a person. There is no salvation apart from God's Son. To receive the kingdom is to receive Christ. To receive the salvation of the kingdom is to receive the Savior. And so the king of the kingdom issues his call to you through the preaching of the gospel. Here's the question. What have you met with in that encounter? What have you met with? You might not have been looking for it. Might be like the man who stumbled upon it in the field. Someone just invites you to church and you agree to go. You haven't had much gospel exposure and on this day you sit here among us and you hear the good news that God saves sinners and God saves sinners in and through the work of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so for the first time you are confronted in a way that is clear to you that you are lost in need of salvation and Jesus is the only way to be saved. You, you have sort of stumbled upon the message. I think about the Apostle Paul. He's on his way to Damascus. He is absolutely convinced that he's right as he persecutes the church and rejects the notion that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah until he meets with the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul wasn't looking for Jesus. Jesus went looking for Saul and interrupted his life and interrupted his journey and took hold of him and saved him. Or I think about the woman Jesus met at the well, the Samaritan woman. She wasn't expecting to meet the Son of God that day as she went to draw water. Just an everyday sort of thing for her to go do that. And there that day she meets with the Son of God who brings to her the forgiveness of her sins. Or maybe due to the sovereign grace of God, to, to grace before grace, maybe you've been on a search. Maybe you're like that pearl merchant spent your whole life searching for the pearl of greatest value, and you've maybe experimented in the realm of religion, and you have exposed yourself to many religious influences and many different philosophies that promised you something, yet you are, you are aware of the fact there's a great emptiness in your soul. There's something desperately missing. Nothing you have come to so far has been the answer. And then you meet with the answer, and you recognize it. You have found it. In your searching, you've come upon it. I think about Lydia. A worshiper of God is how she's <clears throat> described in Acts 16, which is to say she's a proselyte. She, she, she's meeting there with others who are 
listening to the scriptures and listening to teaching, but she's not a believer, not yet. She's not saved. Acts 16, verse 13, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. On that day, she meets with Jesus through the preaching of the apostle Paul, who met with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And so here you are having searched all your life, and you hear about the truth. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. John 10, verse 9, Jesus said, I'm the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. 1 John 5, 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. John 18, 37, Pilate therefore said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So whether you've stumbled upon the message or you've been seeking and seeking and seeking and now you have heard the message of the truth, Here's what you need to know. You've met with a reality to which nothing else compares. The kingdom of heaven is real. The kingdom of heaven is the greatest treasure. Salvation is real. And the king, the Lord Jesus Christ, is preeminent. He is worthy to be viewed by you and received by you as above everything and worth more than everything else combined, which means that the cost is worth it. And what is the cost in these two parables? The cost is everything. The poor man who finds the treasure hidden in the field, what does he do? He liquidates everything to buy that field. And the pearl merchant, what does he do? He sells everything to have that one pearl of great value. The value is so great, there's nothing you would hold on to that would keep you from it. You see, this is the question you're faced with when you meet with the gospel. Will I come to Christ if it costs me this, whatever the this is? Will I receive Christ if it costs me my family? Will I receive Christ if it costs me my friendships? Will I receive Christ if it were to cost me my business life? Will I receive Christ knowing it means I must turn from my sins to receive the Holy Son of God? I'm not saved by purifying my life, but I'm coming to the one who will purify my life. And is that what I'm ready for? Is that what I desire for him to change my life, to take over my life, to be the Lord of my life? 
No one has ever received Jesus as Savior who has rejected him as Lord. You can't divide his person. You don't make him Lord. He is Lord. And so everyone who comes to Christ recognizes, you see, they understand who he is. He is the Lord who saves, but they see him for who he really is so that he is worth more than anything and everything it might cost them to follow him. Someone who is saved is someone who recognizes the value of the kingdom of heaven. Which gets to the second point that I would make about these two parables. Not only do they speak of the true value of the kingdom of heaven, they speak of the valuation of the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it to you this way. The treasure is real, but do you recognize its worth? Do you recognize it? You see, you can have something valuable and people don't recognize it. Or you can have something not so valuable and people act like it is the greatest treasure in the world. Our world is full of that sort of nonsense, isn't it? People who are treating trash like treasure, who take things that are not very valuable and they spend their entire life on it. So the parables say the treasure is real. Here's the question, do you recognize it? The man who was plowing the field or however it was he came upon that treasure, he recognizes its worth. The pearl merchant recognizes that is a pearl unlike anything I've ever seen. And it's of more worth than, than anything I've ever owned. So that when you buy the field, there's joy in your heart. One of the ways you know you recognize the truth of the gospel, that you recognize who Jesus really is, is you don't view salvation like a sacrifice. It's a gift. It's a privilege. Well, let me tell you everything I gave up to know Jesus. As the Apostle Paul said, you know what you gave up? A dunghill. You can take everything you've ever lost in following Christ, and it is a trash heap compared to what you have found in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've lost nothing. You've gained everything. That's the good news of the gospel. Let go of what is not treasure. To receive the greatest treasure man will ever be offered. It's not a life's work lost. It's treasure gained. In both cases, these men would have never been richer. The man who got the treasure hidden in the field, he's rich beyond imagination. And the man who gets that pearl of great value is richer than he's ever been. Which is why the only people who enter the kingdom are the people who recognize the value. Because the cost is real. To be a follower of Christ means you're going to follow him. To know Christ means you're going to be his disciple. Salvation is by faith alone, but where there is genuine faith, there's devotion to the Son of God. You love Him. You now belong to Him. You walk with Him. You're identified with Him, and wherever that happens, there's going to be great cost associated with it. The apostles warn new believers of this all the time. You're going to enter the kingdom through many tribulations, and indeed all who desire to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, you will indeed suffer persecution. You will suffer persecution. And so if you follow him, it's going to cost you. 
our Lord said, if you love father, mother, brother, sister, husband, wife more than you love me, you're not worthy to be my disciple. Indeed, you have to be willing to lose your life to have him. Will you come to Christ without reserve? Will you come to Christ if it means the loss of everything to have him? Because it will. In the realm of your heart, it will cost you everything. Matthew 16, 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Luke 17, 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Right? You, you seek to hold on to your life as you know it right now. You're going to lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. John 12, 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This is the demand you meet with in the gospel. You know, there is obedience to the gospel. It's the obedience of faith. But the gospel comes with a command. The gospel comes with a demand. And to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is to become his disciple, his follower, one of his sheep, his servant, his possession, which means you lose your life as you know it now to receive a new life in him. Is this what you desire? And by the way, in both of these parables, the men make decisions, don't they? You decide to go sell everything you have to buy the field. You decide to go sell everything you have to purchase that one pearl of great value. And this is what happens when someone is saved. There is a real decision made. God didn't believe for you. Your faith was a gift like everything else in salvation. But you exercised it. So do you recognize the value of the kingdom, the value of salvation, the value of Christ to the degree that there will be nothing that stands between you and Jesus? And whatever it would cost to have him, with joy, you will lose it to gain Christ and all that you find in him. This is what is present when people enter the kingdom of heaven. It's just my third point. That is, where do you get the eyes to recognize the value? The gospel is preached. Some people, it's going to bounce off them. Some people prove to be shallow. They don't last. Some people love this world. As a result, they will not follow Christ. How do you explain the good soil? How do you explain the people who see, who understand? Again, Jesus talks about understanding in Matthew 13. If you understand, you turn. If you understand, you trust. How do you explain the understanding? Where does the understanding come from? Where do the eyes come from that recognize the value of Christ? And I want to emphasize the fact that when you see this value, all you're doing is recognizing what is truly there. This is not some pathetic, misguided sense of value. This is recognizing what is truly valuable. Where does it come from? The answer is it comes from God. We read it in Acts 16, the Lord opened Lydia's heart. Or 2 Corinthians 4, 6, which says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts, 
writing to believers, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When God created the world, he said, let there be light. And when God forms new creations, when he brings into being believers, he says, let there be light. So that all that happens is, whereas before you were blind, now you see. Where you were deaf, now you hear. Where your heart was hard, now it's a heart of flesh. Where there was unwillingness, now there's desire. You can see the value of the kingdom. You can see the value of Christ. You recognize the treasure, which explains your willingness to lose everything to have this one treasure. God granted to us light in the form of knowledge. And what we knew was his glory is seen in the face of his son. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the eternal son come to earth, born of a virgin. Jesus is the only savior. Jesus is my only hope. Jesus is Lord. You saw this because God opened your eyes. Acts 26, 16, God giving Paul his marching orders when he saved him. The Bible says, but rise and stand upon your feet for I've appeared to you for this purpose. This is what our Lord commissions him to do personally. I've appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. How are you sanctified positionally? How are you brought into the family and kingdom of God? Answer, by faith alone. But how do you believe? The answer, your eyes were opened through a man preaching like Paul would preach the gospel wherever he went. The gospel was brought to you and the Spirit of God in that moment where you met with the gospel, granted you regeneration, new birth, your eyes were open, and as a result, you trusted in Christ. When God grants this sight, men and women run to Jesus. They don't have to be forced. They don't have to be convinced. They're convinced by what they can now see due to the work of the Spirit of God in their hearts. By the way, this is effectual calling. Some people have referred to it as irresistible grace. I don't like that terminology because I think it confuses in the minds of people what this really describes. When you think of irresistible grace, you think of people sort of being dragged against their will to the Lord Jesus. It's not like that at all. No, God does something in the human soul that makes the person willing. And it's called vision, spiritual sight. And along with that, a new heart a new birth that now allows people to see and makes them desire what they would have not seen before and would have had no appetite for before. You weren't dragged to Jesus against your will. God did a work in your heart that made you run to Jesus because you see the value of who he is and you evaluate it accordingly. I've heard it illustrated, it may have been R.C. Sproul who illustrated it this way. I thought it was helpful. And don't nitpick the illustration, all right? probably has some weaknesses, but I do think it's helpful. First, instead, if you take a piece of meat 
and you put it before a cow and you give the cow the opportunity to eat the meat, the cow's not going to eat the meat. Why? Because it's a cow. Put some whatever you feed cows, okay? Grass, whatever, whatever you put there. That's what the cow's going to eat. But if I had the power in a moment to change that cow into a lion, I would not have to convince the lion to eat the meat. The change in nature is what would explain the lion devouring the meat. When you and I were in our natural condition, born of Adam, sinners, you could have put the gospel before us all day long as though it were a piece of meat and we were not coming because we were spiritual cows. We had no appetite for it. But what the Lord does in the new birth, what He does in regeneration is He changes the nature in an instant while the gospel message is present so that now you become a spiritual lion and nobody forced you to come to Jesus. You devoured Him because you could see what was true and real. Your values changed in a moment. And He became more important to you and the salvation found in Him became more important to you than anything the world has to offer all of it combined. What would it profit a man if he could gain the whole world, but he lost his soul? What will a man give? We could say it this way. What will you take in exchange for your soul? And when you see Jesus for who he is, nothing will stand between you and him. So I want to ask you as we finish. Has this ever happened in your life? The, the word of the kingdom is spreading throughout the earth, being exposed to various kinds of soil. What kind of soil are you? Was there a time when your eyes were opened and you recognized the value of the kingdom and your valuation of it matched the value so that Jesus was worth more to you, salvation was worth more to you, the kingdom of heaven was worth more to you, and everything else combined. And with joy, you ran to Jesus for life. You believed God's promise that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You recognized your lostness and your inability to save yourself, and you knew Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the door. There's no other one, no other way but Him. And you received Him as your Lord and Savior. And in that moment, you entered the kingdom and family of God. Is that you? Now let me finish with this warning. There are many people who will say that is them, but their life tells the truth. You can't tell me that Jesus means more to you than the whole world if you don't live for Him. You know where your treasure is. It's where your heart is at. And so if we say Jesus is my treasure, but your heart is always somewhere else, we watch your life and, and we watch what you're devoted to, what you'll sacrifice for, what you'll lose something for. And it's not Jesus. It's something else, something else. Then please be wise enough to take an honest inventory of where your heart is. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, then He's your treasure. And if He's your treasure, your life reflects that. Not perfectly, of course. We go through seasons 
where the enticements of this world sidetrack us. But we can't stay there, can we? I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than man's applause. I'd rather have Jesus. We sing that song, don't we? And it ends with the thought, I'd rather have Jesus than anything. And if the Lord has saved you, that's your heart. I'd rather have him than anything. Has the Lord done that work in your life so that you've trusted in Christ as your treasure? The one who saves your soul. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the grace of the new birth. And in the case of your people, you did not leave us where we were by nature, deserving of your wrath, but because of your great love with which you loved us, because of great mercy, you opened our eyes to turn from the power of Satan to the power of God, to turn from our sins to the Savior, the one who forgives our sins, whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you for this deliverance that has made us your own people. I pray, Lord, for anyone hearing me this day who is yet to trust in Christ, would they this day see the infinite value of the Son of God, of the salvation purchased by Him and offered by Him and offered in Him, and would they turn even this day, from their sins to trust in your Son for life. And I pray, Lord, for every believer struggling with worldly desires that we would recognize that you've taken hold of us, that we might pursue what we've been taken hold of for, and we would live our lives, not wasting our lives in the realm of trash, but we would invest all that we are on behalf of the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.